Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Well, hello there. My name is Bill Hendricks. I'm the Executive Director for Christian Leadership at the Hendricks Center. And it's my privilege to welcome you to The Table Podcast, where we where we look at issues of God and culture. And if you're a pastor, or if you're married to a pastor, or if you know a pastor, today's podcast is for you because we are going to look at the pastor's personal life in respect to the things that the pastor deals with professionally. Uh, for the last many years, the Barna organization has been keeping track of what it calls the state of the pastor's world and looking particularly at what it calls well-being for pastors. Well-being in six areas, uh, relational well-being, spiritual, physical, emotional, vocational, financial. And in uh, November of 2021, Barna came out with research in which it showed that one out of three only one out of three pastors in the United States today is considered healthy in terms of well-being. Uh, 35, I'm sorry, 38% have in fact considered quitting the pastorate in the past year. And a lot of people think, well, that's the effects of the pandemic that began in uh, March of, of 2020 here in North America. But our guest today was on top of this problem long before the pandemic even came on the horizon. Many of you will know the name Tom Nelson, a longtime friend personally of me, but a longtime friend of the Hendricks Center and the Table podcast. Tom, you've done quite a number of those with us, and we always love welcoming you back. Tom leads the Made to Flourish Network, whose mission is to empower pastors and their churches to integrate faith, work, and economic wisdom for the flourishing of their communities. And uh, we're going to come back to that term flourishing. But Tom, back in 2019, you invited me and my wife to come to a Made to Flourish gathering in Kansas City and uh, with your stakeholders. And on Saturday morning, you had a closing address in which you gave a presentation to the group where you put your finger on a major problem that pastors face, which is isolation and even a sense of loneliness and burnout. And uh, frankly, at the time, you, you said that it was your finding, both from hard research like Barna's, as well as from the wide interaction that you have with many pastors in the Made to Flourish Network, you said pastors today, frankly, are in crisis. That, that statement grabbed me then. It still grabs me to this day. Tell us more about that and what, what, what was it that caused you to, to seize on that issue? Yeah, well, Bill, thank you. Uh, it's just super great to be with you today. And uh, so appreciate you and your good work and our friendship over the years. And uh, so I'm humbled and grateful to be here. I'm a pastor. I'm still a pastor uh, serving a wonderful uh, congregation in Kansas City. So I'm still in the trenches. I'm still I haven't finished well yet. I'm still trucking along, so I'm no expert, but I, I did uh, make that statement, uh, gave that address you talked about, and with conviction, and I think a sense of strong cognition, that uh, pastors are not doing very well. In many ways, I had no idea the pandemic was around the corner. I don't think I had decided to agree with Ivy P to write this book, 
then. Um, so when I look back at where we are now in uh, 2022, I would say um, it's even more that. Uh, I think there's more evidence anecdotally and, and data-wise that pastors are hurting in lots of ways. So we can press into maybe more why, because the book that just came out on that, at least we highlighted maybe the paradigmatic problem, formational problem, some of the spiritual formation problem, and some of the thinking we have about what we are called to do and be. So we can press more into that. But uh, I do think there are some significant challenges on multiple levels. And our culture, we can talk about that too, our culture is increasingly hostile for many of us. And that's a whole new dynamic. And just for the benefit of our listeners, the book that we are talking about is titled The Flourishing Pastor, Recovering the Lost Art of Shepherd Leadership. Uh, so you can check that out uh, at your bookstore or online and so forth. In, in many ways, Tom, in this book, it, it seems to me you're trying to answer the question, who shepherds the shepherd? You know, the pastor's right. tasked in the New Testament with shepherding the flock. And, you know, we all have that image of both the provider and the protector. But then you discover the shepherd, him or herself, is is got to be shepherded. Tell us more about where that where that paradigm of shepherd comes from for you. Right, right. I I say in the book, and I think theologically it's very strong that it is the primary metaphor of biblical leadership throughout all of Scripture. There are other tributaries uh, that help mm-hmm. us understand the dynamics of leadership, but I think that is the main one. You know, most of us who are pastors or leaders, and most of us in this podcast are in this five hundred one c three world, and we care deeply about what we do. We often talk about, I know I have many years like lost sheep. You know, we know there's a lot of lost sheep out there. You know, but what is really perilous is there are a lot of lost shepherds. And the scripture talk about that, right? In the Old Testament from Ezekiel, the danger of a, of a shepherd getting lost. So I really start to go there first and foremost, that I think the primary uh, concern I have is not just lost sheep. We have a lot of those and a shepherd should care, but lost shepherds. And we can lose our way many ways, Bill, right? I mean, I, I think that's really important that, that shepherds do lose their way. Uh, and let's maybe press into more of uh, how that takes place, at least my own experience, my own study. But we need to take seriously that the shepherds can get lost. And the consequence to the shepherd, to his, fa- his or her family, to the, to the uh, congregation, to the sheep, to the community is per- very significant. So uh, I guess I just simply want to say that I really built this thesis of the book around those who lead well are well-led. The primacy of leadership is to follow well. Uh, and that does sound a bit paradoxical because we think leadership is out there and influence mm-hmm. and it's all that. But I think the primacy of leadership is to follow well and obviously follow uh, our great shepherd, our good shepherd. That's prim- primary job one for any shepherd. Well, it, it seems to me to stick with that, the great shepherd motif. And, and of course, it takes us right back to not only John 10, but to, but to Psalm 23, the Lord is right. our shepherd. And a pastor, then you're saying above all, it needs to follow Jesus as a shepherd for the benefit of his or her own soul. And don't just say that, you know, as a nice little metaphor, but that's a, right. that's a core existential need is what I'm hearing you say. It, it is. And you know, one of the things that I've discovered over the years, the book is actually, you know this because you looked at it and you gave input and I'm grateful for that and you endorsed it, but it's the only book I've ever written on one verse. I mean, there's primary one verse. If I may frame that a little bit, because it's a verse that 
uh, I have been studying and particularly some of the Hebrew behind it since I was in seminary. It's, it's caught my uh, imagination. But it's Psalm 78, 72. And it says, David shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful hands. And our thoughtful listeners will know that this text is a summary text of David's life. It's not perfect, right? But his, he's the paradigm of, of biblical leadership. David, a man that has a heart for God. So what happens in that verse, which is so profound at the end of Psalm 78, is you have this developmental framework, right? He shepherded them is the primary paradigm that guides biblical leadership, primary. Mm-hmm. And I unpacked that from Psalm 23. We can talk a little more about that. But right on the heels of that, he shepherded them according to what? Right, Bill, it's like integrity of heart. And that Hebrew is tom lay. This idea of tom and heart is lay is really important in Scripture. It's a picture of an integral life. Uh, and it's ontological first, and then it flows to ethic, ethical. Um, integrity, however, then, and that's formation. That's the very core of who we are. We live and lead and love out of the overflow of who we are in the internal aspects of our life, our formational life, our virtue formation. Let's spend a lot of time here. Integrity, but then on that, notice he says he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart bill. And then what? He guided them with skillful hands. That literally right. is Tobin Ayod. It's an artistic sense that shepherds lead well. They, they guide, they direct, they have the rod and staff. There's a leadership enterprise that flows out of their paradigm and who they are. So I framed the book around those three realities and I critique each one because I think many shepherds lose their way first in a paradigmatic way. The sense of their calling, their North Star, their GPS gets off. When that gets off, the rest just collapses. What what would you say are the biggest causes of losing track with that North Star? Is it doctrinal? Is it it, uh, uh, emotional? What, What? Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question. Again, in most questions, there's a complexity of multiple inputs that lead us uh, off track or lead us to abandon or compromise our calling. But I'm highlighting in the book, I think, more of a paradigmatic error where we conceive our mission, our calling as pastors, and it's distorted. It's impoverished. And I list three of them I think are really common today. And when I work with younger pastors, I talk a lot about those three perils. Uh, of course, there's the danger of uh, moral compromise or financial malfeasance. I'm not, mis- I'm not uh, uh, neglecting that. But the three I highlight, Bill, uh, that are very common in our time, they're very perilous to the individual pastor over time, their family, their health, their mental well-being, their leadership, their influence over a lifetime, is the three I call a celebrity pastor, the visionary pastor, and the long-ranger pastor. So I use those kind of framing metaphors to unpack in the early chapter of where I think we get off base on a conceptual paradigmatic level. If our paradigm, if our North Star setting of our calling is off, hmm. you know, it's like if just a little bit at first, over time, we will be really way lost, off. Right? right. So those three, at least, are very common and very perilous. And I think need a lot of attention today from pastors and leaders to avoid that or to make corrections. So let's start with that celebrity pastor. That 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 seems to be a, a, a massive problem. Um, it, it's like we have the wrong uh, met- metric of of success. That somehow this is about my reputation, my celebrity status, my numbers, my uh, you know number of books, number of podcast listeners, yeah. whatever it is. 
You know, I think, again, that is so alluring. The siren songs of pride and fame has been alluring from day one, right? That's part of the prideful alluring of our heart. But I think in today's world, there are more avenues and potential to fan that flame of visibility and celebrity. And all of our hearts are susceptible to that. Like I was saying in the book, you don't have to be, you know, being a big frog, a big pond to be a big frog. Right. So, I mean, you have big frogs and little ponds and big ponds. And it's really about one's ego, right? The Mm -hmm. size of one's ego, not the size of one's stewardship and ministry at the core. But I think the celebrity piece is so alluring because our culture reinforces brand. And now with the Internet, we used to be just a camera. There's something that happens with the incredible reach we can have without the commensurate integrity and depth of humility to sustain that. Right. Uh, and we see that in many different ecclesial contexts with incredible shrapnel. I mean, right across the country, when someone's character and virtue and humility and accountability didn't have the depth to sustain the visible uh, impact they're having in the fan club and all the adulation of their gifts. So I do think it's, it's an incredible problem. And I talk in the book about the green room effect. You know, when, when you travel and speak, and I've, I've been in very... Uh, invisible context, which I'm grateful for, obscurity, which as a church planner starting out with two people in Kansas City, you know, I, I left the visible space to enter obscurity. But all along the way to more obscurity visibility, I've had to guard this, right? And in a certain period of my ministry, I guess I had enough, quote, success or influence to be in green rooms and speak. And when you're in green rooms, things really change. And so it's about often jockeying for position and pride. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just saying, God doesn't give us a green room. I mean, they're, they're, I'm not trying to be uncharitable. There are good things about a green room for preparation, prayer, but I call it the green room effect. Mm-hmm. But I just have to go back that God didn't give us a green room. And Jesus didn't give us a green room. He gave us a basin and towel. And we need to hold on to that, no yeah. matter what size of ministry or what visibility we're given. So it's very perilous. And we probably need to, if we're more visible, we need to work very hard to find places that obscurity and where people that we're with we can't do anything for them or for us that we're just we're just people we have to find places where we're not visible we can just serve do are you suggesting uh that perhaps there's a spiritual discipline about obscurity that that we actually intentionally seek out places and moments and assignments that we knowingly go into knowing nobody's really going to notice this except God. Yes. And, you know, maybe the handful or one or two people that we're going to be serving here. Um, and hopefully I observe it yeah. as, as the person doing it. You know, it's fascinating though. I mentioned Psalm seventy-eight, seventy-two. right before that, the other two verses p- paints a picture of David being prepared in obscurity. Hmm. You know, it says he also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfold, right from the care that right. he used the second lambs. He brought him then to shepherd Jacob, his people. Moses was prepared in obscurity. So I'm just saying obscurity is never a barrier to God's will. It's often a pathway to it. And we often think it's a barrier or an obstacle in God's timing and place. So, yes, I think obscurity is a really important discipline for all of life, that we look for places of where we're not recognized where it's not quid pro quo, we're not, we're not getting something from it, but we're serving in obscurity before our audience of one. I need that bill more than ever in my more visible role these days, but I've yeah. always needed it. Yeah. Because obscurity is that deep place of intimacy and transformation 
that is vital for any servant leader. It's never an obstacle. I tell guys or people who are pastors, men and women, like maybe you don't have a real visible ministry. You know, in many ways, God just looks at your faithfulness, your heart. It's not about the size of your ministry. It's, it's the quality of your life and your heart. Well, I've had my own modest share of the green room experience, Tom, and I have almost been embarrassed at times where at least my experience of that is how much of that experience is, is me focused. Like everybody's, you know, fawning yes. to whatever I need, yeah. you know, down to what, what kind of water do you want? You know, I mean, it's like whatever I want or need, then I'm, you know, I get it. And there's something about that. that's not only seductive. I think it's uh, um, deceptive because it, it just tends to say, because, you know, you're the big deal here. You're the big deal. <laughs> and really, you're not that big a deal. You're, you're not God's that big, big a deal. deal. You're just a servant. Yeah. You're just a servant. God just said, hey, I want you to do a few things with these folks yeah. on my behalf. And um, But it is, it, is, it is very tempting. Tell me about the vision trap. Um, yeah, you know, you're visionary, like... Gosh, yeah. I've been hearing, you know, we get, we need people of vision, you know, without the vision, people perish. Yeah, I might lose our listeners here. I, I don't want to be, I don't want to overcorrect. I'm just going to speak into it a little bit because I, I know that many of us have been taught that vision is a vital part of leadership. And I would, I would love to use the word like direction, hmm. a group of leaders to seek God's direction together. I do think that's more healthy. So I'm not saying leaders don't give direction and guide, okay? but I am saying the idea of vision really has come into the evangelical church. If you know this history, this idea has recently just come in. Okay, I'm just saying, and it came yep. uh, from Joel Barker, who was a futurist, a pantheist. I'm not being terrible him, but in the power of vision work he did, and Barna picked that up and found one verse in an amplified translation of the Bible in Proverbs. This is about the vision, without vision, the people perish. Right. Well, Chazon, vision in biblical text, I know our listeners love this and want good theology and exegesis, is really not as we think of vision today. It's the revelation of God. Mm. If God's revelation is not there, right? People right, are in darkness, right? They don't have illumination truth. They perish. So uh, it has been brought into the Christian terminology. And it's not all bad, but it's also dangerous. Let me unpack that a little bit. Here, here's what I've experienced. I've been in context where there's been one visionary. Let's use Jim Collins' organization. Yeah. The genius with a thousand helpers, right? There's peril with that. But what is not talked about is not only the potential peril to cast a vision that is culturally encoded. Usually it's bigger, better, more, greater, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's not God's kingdom, right? If, if we're going to cast vision, I have to cast metaphor more, but if we're going to cast vision, we are to cast the vision of the life God has for us in the kingdom, in scripture. I'm, I'm all for casting that vision, right? Yes. Life God has for us and the mission God has for us. But what happens, it gets all kinds of entrapped in the trappings of culture that usually are bigger, better, more. Now, another thing is, it's not often said, I know I have many great leaders who are more that visionary mindset. And I've talked to them over time, 20 years of being a visionary pastor, okay? Coming down from Mount Sinai, I mean, we're not quite that blazing, but right, it's like God has given us the next vision for this church or this ministry. And usually it's bigger, better, greater. We're going to mm -hmm. do this, right? So what happens in visionaries, and I'm just then I read, but I've had lots of conversations in safety with visionary leaders. Usually in time, they hit the wall. 
because they got to keep casting some bigger, better, more, greater vision, and they are exhausted. Right. And they begin to live a counterfeit or a compartmentalized life. So I'm saying what is, the, what is not said is the potential of the visionary dreamer. I'll use Bonhoeffer's language because Bonhoeffer warned the church of the danger of visionary dreaming. He says, God hates visionary dreaming. And he understood that from a Nazi background, right? Yeah, the leadership right. that got off the rails. But his point, I think, is well taken, uh, is that visionary dreaming can go off the rails. So it's very perilous to the community, potentially. It needs a community, community of leaders to guide it. If you're going to do that, that's anchored in scripture, anchored in the kingdom. But what is not said, and I know I'm a little contrarian, I'll stop here, but I know many leaders who have been visionary in their paradigm, okay, for maybe 15 to 20 years and had significant success that are burnt out, exhausted, and the people around them are. Uh, and we're seeing some of the casualties and some of the more visible meltdowns of the visionary celebrity leader that is um, very toxic to the culture, toxic to the organization, and very toxic to their own self. Often their marriage and their health and everyone around them suffers. It's, 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 a, it's this concern I have for many people. Well, the, the poison pill, it seems to me, within that paradigm is that you're now saddled with the endless question of, so what am I going to do to top this? Yes. Yeah. Right. The next big thing. The next big thing. And, um, you know, you only get so many times to do the next big thing. <laughs> At some point, you kind of max out or, or it goes silent. You go, well, what's the next big thing? I don't know. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's a bad place to be. You know, Tom, when I, when I think of the word vision, I mean, you're the, the Hebrew expert here, uh, but I think back in the Old Testament, if my understanding is correct, I was associate the vision coming through the prophets in the Old Testament, not so much the kings. It's not the person in charge who's saying, here's right. the next big thing. Exactly. It's the prophet saying, here's the word from God on what you need to hear about what he wants done right. now. Right. right. And I think for many of us, we have a sense of the goodness of canonicity here. Hmm. That the authority, if we're Protestant reforming people, I mean, if that's our background, that the canon is really the primacy of God's revealed word. It doesn't mean God can't speak to us in other ways. I don't want to say that. But I mean, that's where, again, I think that prophetic line of vision is exactly right. It's a, a large part of that vision is encoded in scripture, okay, of the hmm. vision God has for us in the life now and in the life to come, already not yet. So, I mean, I, I'm a visionary in that sense. I want to continue to communicate through God's word what God's desire and design is for his world uh, and the goodness of the gospel. I mean, that if I can cast that vision, I want to do that. But the other stuff gets, gets a little bit murky at times and can become perilous. And again, I want to be charitable, but I do critique it because I think there's some real perils here if we're not careful. Well, maybe this is a, a side trail, but uh, it, it is interesting to me that the biggest vision that David had, he never actually got because his big vision was, I'm going to build a big temple for God. I'm going to build a house right. for the Lord. That's I great. mean, over and over and over and over again in the Psalms, I want to be in the house of the Lord, I, in the house of the Lord. And at the end, God says, you know nope. what? You're not the person to do nope. that. For me. <laughs> well, you know, again, what that comes to is like, I always tell people so much of what we do and how we do it is depending on our time horizon. Mm -hmm. And that's not mm -hmm. talked about enough. If you have a very short time horizon, it profoundly changes how you live each day. If you have a long time horizon, both now and in the eternity, you have a very different approach to building institutions, mm. to leadership. We could go there too, because time horizon really does that. 
<laughs> oh, thank you for saying that. Thank you for saying that because so much vision I find in leaders, it's always with in my horizon, this is going to happen in my time and I'm yes. going to help lead it and make it happen as opposed to taking the long view. You know, this may not really be something God wants to do in my generation. Maybe it's in my kid's time okay. or my grandkid's time, but what am I leaving? What am I giving? What am I stewarding for handing down to the future? Doesn't that speak? Man, I just, I couldn't agree with you more, my friend. It's like, doesn't that speak for, to all of us? I'm just saying to me too, of the myopia of an ego driven life, right? I mean, yes, we're to number our days. And in fact, we should be more probably attuned to the fragility of our temporal realm, right? Right. Yeah. Well, and so there's a conspiracy there between the conspiracy trap and the and the visionary trap, I guess, is is I gotta I gotta do this in my time. Right. And then you 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 mentioned the Lone Ranger. Oh yeah. And that that was the one you really highlighted back in 2019 and that talk that you gave at the made to flourish stakeholders forum. And my heart kind of winced as you went through a lot of statistics and anecdotes about, I guess you'd say lonely, lonely pastors. Tell me more about this episode is brought to you by the truce podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, if you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh? That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Well, I, I'm speaking out of my own experience. One of, one of the great ironies or maybe even paradoxes of pastoral calling or leadership calling in a 501c3 world or even in a, not, in a profit world is that often leaders are surrounded by people. And if you're a pastor and have visibility, there are people everywhere, right? You're just, you're in the people business, right? And yet the irony, or maybe almost a paradox, but the irony at least is that many of us are deeply lonely in the midst of a crowd. Hmm. We are unknown. And, you know, I would just defer to uh, my good friend, Kurt Thompson, and his great work. But God created us to know him and be known, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's even Paul says that in Galatians, to be known by God and be known by others, to be safe. Um, and uh, we could press a little more into that, what we know about interpersonal neurobiology. I bring some of that into the book. But each of us has the deepest creation need and redemptive need to be deeply known by others. Um, we don't flourish in isolation. I mean, my wife is a mental health professional. Uh, I've worked with mental professionals and the importance of community for healing. I mean, all of us also have blind spots, right? We are never created to be alone, uh, right? Uh, we, we live, serve, breathe in community. And yet the irony is many pastors by their own intentionality or default are deeply alone. They are deeply isolated. And, and often in larger organizations, as you have more what success or visibility, you become more isolated. So you have to work even more diligently, more intently, more humbly, 
more passionately to deeply connect your life to a group of safe friends who know you fully, who can speak into your life, um, and who can bring healing to your life, right? Confess your sins to one another, scripture says, you be healed. So, I mean, it's, it's one of the most perilous things. I have more and more conversations, Bill, and I know my own tendency has been that because I'm an introvert. I know mm-hmm. I've had to really mm-hmm. work and listen carefully and find those places, as Dan Siegel says, where I can be seen, safe, secure, and soothed. I mean, we need those realities to be whole and healthy. But I've had more conversation over the years once I'm safe with people, especially pastors, who will look at me and say, I've never had a friend forever. I can't really be myself. You know, I have no place to go. Uh, I don't have a good counselor. I'm a good therapist. I'm a good friend. But it's, it's deeply perilous. And um, I use the example of Alex Hanold, you know, who climbed uh, El Capitan. One of those amazing things without ropes. It's an amazing right. story. Yeah. But the Free picture soul. there picture there of climbing El Capitan and Alex Honnold is a picture of many pastors who are climbing this massive cliff, right, with no safety ropes of community, all on their own. And it is a picture that I, I'm deeply concerned about. In my own life, I have to keep working at this, but in so many of my pastors and younger pastors, I speak, I speak about this probably more than anything else, the need for community, the need for safety, the, the need for being completely vulnerable to a handful of people. We can't be whole, we can't lead we can't love and serve without that. It's, it's just impossible. Well, I can hear many pastors hearing this, and, and you know where I'm going. <laughs> and they're saying, well, Tom, that sounds great. I, 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 you know, I, 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 I agree. We, we all ought to have friends. But, boy, I don't know what church you're at, but in my church, there's no way I can have friends and be honest, like you're saying, and speak freely. And because, boy, it, there's just too many political landmines. There's there's too much toxicity. I've tried that. I've gotten burned. I've gotten betrayed. I've, I mean, um, and so they just sort of throw up their hands and go. Uh, I mean, I even even within uh, the last many days, I, I had a pastor say to me because we talked about this very issue and. You know, his family had been involved and he said, well, maybe what I need to do is just put my family at a different church and then I'll just work at this church. And that way I don't we don't have to worry about, you know, if she says something then it gets back, to, you know. Well, you know, again, I agree. It's like I've been in this uh, 34 years in the trenches yeah. and uh, I can You're speaking that. from experience. No, I can understand that. I'm yeah. not minimizing that. I know it's particularly hard because we wear different hats and we're, if we're paid, we're an employee, we have a board, right? We have a visibility, we have steward, multiple stewardships, we have a family. My kids used to say, you know, you dad, you talk about living before an audience of one. We live every Sunday before an audience of a thousand, you know, it's like, so I understand that, right? I do understand that. However, let me just do the however. It's perilous for us to be alone, right? If you want to go back to Genesis, it's not good for man to be alone. That's not only true in relationships, that's true in terms of work, but, but in relationships, we're not, you know, we can't be alone. So we have to press into that. We have to be wise and we have to take the intentionality. Even if we've been burned, okay, we've had the disappointment. Uh, you know, we've all had that. We need to keep pressing into it. So what I want to suggest a couple of things. One is many of us can have a safe counselor, okay? And pay them, okay? I'm just saying, unless you're completely broke, Pay someone wise to be able to share your story. I mean, Kurt Thompson, the most brilliant people, we have to tell our story to others. We have to be known. Yes. We're storied people. I mean, I unpack that more in the book. But uh, you need, we need 
people that tell our stories good. Uh, and so where do you do that? A couple of things you can do. One is a really good counselor. Find a couple of safe friends outside the church. There's nothing wrong with that. If you don't have a say, I think I have one, there's one, I think really close friend inside our church. I have a couple outside. That's okay. But find those safe places uh, and uh, make it a commitment of your life to be known and to know them safely. Um, so I'm just saying you can find them. And they may be professionals. And another, another thing, I, I just conversation with the pastors where I go speak. I had a pastor in Nashville come and say, you can tell I've been a pastor for 30 some years. I've never been so lonely. I don't have a friend I can share my heart with. So I connected him right away. I said, hey, do you have a counselor? You know, not that rest have a counselor, but is there some counselor to walk through some of the things in life you have to deal with? Or a coach like, Bill, you've been that in my life, in my life. A safe person I can be transparent with. And uh, I said, what about another pastor that's not ego-driven, not about his or her own gig, but it's very kingdom-minded and Christ-like and will be your cheerleader and, and your prophet to speak into your life? Is there a couple of pastors, even outside maybe your ecclesial tradition, like networks like Made to Flourish or some other network is a great place to meet a couple of pastors and share your heart with and develop a covenant friendship with. So we can do this. I know it's hard, but we must do this for our own health, our relational health, our spiritual health, for the glory of God, his church, and for the effectiveness of our leadership. We cannot lead well and be deeply lonely. We just can't. Well, a, a few moments ago, we talked about, uh, I, I'd use the phrase, a spiritual discipline of obscurity. Right. And here, what I'm hearing is, is sort of an appeal for a spiritual discipline of I don't know if it's friendship or being knownness, um, how to agree. quite phrase yeah. it. But Both are great. Yep. When I say spiritual discipline, this is not a nice thing to have. What, what we're saying, what I hear you saying is um, you have to actively and intentionally yeah. put yourself in the path of a means of grace. Right. And a friend is a means of grace for your soul, because without it, the enemy will pick you off. Right. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, no, and I love your means of grace. I love your theological language you're built. One of the things I say in my life, and again, I'm very imperfect. I mean, we are, I'm a struggler. We're, I just want people to know that. They know <laughs> I just want to be very real here. Um, but one of the things that my wife and I, Liz and I, have done more in the last several years is we've been more intentional as a couple. Now, again, I don't know if your listeners uh, are married, single, male, female, where they are in life. Uh, but for me, I'm married. We've been married 40 years. And I look back at some of our uh, journey and I say, you know, I, haven't, I wasn't as intentional about this as I should have been. I do have some regret here about forming some deep friendships. I was so focused on my own gig or whatever. But we've been very intentional the last several years as a couple mm -hmm. to develop a handful of close friends. We even have a code name for them. And we spend time, again, uh, we've sought them out. They've sought us out and we spend time together on a yearly and um, monthly basis. Like yearly, we go to Colorado and we just spend time together. So I'm just saying there are places even that are so rich of a, a small group of friends. There's not, not tons of people, but you want to do life well, well with, you want to be completely transparent and vulnerable and you want to finish well. I mean, I think that's part of the, part of my prayer is Lord, help me to finish well, whatever that means. And I can't do that alone. None of us can do that alone. We're never designed to do that. We need each other. We need coaches. We need counselors. We need people to help us finish well. That's why isolation is so deadly and Satan licks his chops at it. Yeah. There's more people through that. Well, let me, let me jump from sort of this dark ne negative side of, <laughs> yeah, of yeah. this equation. Cause we do, we have a lot of pastors that are just dying on the vine. But you've actually titled your book, The Flourishing Pastor. So you've got this 
sort of positive vision that you're holding yeah. out. Tell me more about what you mean by flourishing and what that looks like for a pastor. Yeah, and so what I would where I would go is this is where I unpack Psalm 23 because I think Psalm 23, you know, is often a psalm we use for a memorial service if we're a clergy person. It really is comfort in death. Uh, it's also a guide for life. But what I don't think people think about, to me, it's one of the greatest templates of leadership. So where I think I want to go there is early on, I, I do critique some of the challenges, how shepherds get lost. But I call all of us as shepherds back to the, the good shepherd, right? To the primary calling in life is to intimacy with him. And when we walk through Psalm 23, which I have a whole chapter on that. It's profoundly transformation and transformational in terms of our leadership built. Because, as I said, those who lead well are well-led. The primacy of my life is to follow well. I mean, I do believe in leading well, right? There's a stewardship we all have of leading well. But my primary passion, focus, is to follow well. Of course, that means following others rightly, but following God, the Good Shepherd, and Jesus the most. So Psalm 23 frames this leadership paradigm. And it's a life, as Dallas Woodard said, is a life of no lack. That in him we find, and you see this walking, his constant presence. So I emphasize the importance of cultivating the presence of, of Jesus with us every day in apprenticeship. But you'll notice as Psalm 23 goes, the sense of <clears throat> several themes. One is his constant presence, his attentive presence. Simone Weil said that love is focused attention. I love that, right? I mean, she hit that out of the park, that love is focused attention. And when I know experientially, not just cognitively, that Jesus is always with me. The spirit dwells in me. And when God walks in the room, he delights in me. He never leaves me. When his presence is always there for me, when I have that recognition, when I cultivate his attentive presence, it's profoundly transformational because the primary calling in life for a pastor is not accomplishing great things for God. It's being intimate with him. Hmm. It's cultivating great intimacy. Intimacy is the primacy of that. So his attentive presence, but also his moment-by-moment guidance, right? So the psalm gives us these strong guiding Hephil Hebrew verbs, like God is causatively acting. Yes, we have agency, but he's deeply invested in guiding us, right? And being behind us, before us, with us, right? He's ahead of us. So this brings incredible energy and focus to my daily life and my work. When I know that he's there with me, he's attending to, attending to me, he gives me guidance and the smallest details uh, when I ask him, and leave. but also his provision. Notice how that Psalm goes from attentiveness I'm with you is at the center of that psalm, okay, his presence, but his guidance, but also his provision, his abundant provision. Mm -hmm. Prepare a table for me as a host, right? Abundance. Mm -hmm. So Psalm 23, I think, needs to be deeply embedded in our heart and mind, not only in a personal devotional way, but in a leadership paradigm. And, I, and that's where I want to say, I want to start there with Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is generally the first thing I think about when I get up in the morning and the last thing I recall to my mind at night. Not every day, but many, many days. It is my constant guide. Uh, and so that's where I really unpack on the first part of the book. And of course, there's a really important part, a whole section on spiritual formation and virtue formation and how we increasingly become who we're called to be so that we don't live a lie. We're not presenting ourselves to be something we're not. But there is a closing gap between how we live, what we believe, and how we behave. Not perfect. One day we'll be there perfect, right? It's not yeah. sinless perfection. And then flourishing pastor, I highlight as well, that there are certain things about leadership that are fundamental to flourish as a leader, and that's the last section, the skill or art, artistry of a leader. So that's where my, my book tries to 
you know, help a little bit, I think, guide pastors and leaders to flourish. That's a long answer to your question. I said I was going to go that long. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I keep running into, though, when, when I, whenever I touch on this theme of flourishing, thanks to your book, I, I mentioned it to many people and, and the, the whole concept of flourishing. But I keep running into a pushback from some people occasionally. And it's this idea that, oh, that sounds too good to be not only true, but, but it's not really given to us to live that abundantly. Jesus said, if we're going to follow him, we've got to suffer. And, yeah. and, and if I'm not suffering, I must not be following him. Yeah. And, and, and so I should expect that, that this task that he's called me to, called pastoring, it ought to be arduous. It ought to be hard. What did I sign up for? You know, he, he didn't call me to, you know, have have a, just a, 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 a cruise ship existence. You know, he called me on this perilous journey where I, every day it's it's you know all bets are off on whether I'm going to make it. That that that's the mindset. Yeah. Well, there's much there, and I appreciate that sort of. Uh you know, struggle, but I would just say a couple of things. There's much to, be, much to be said there, Bill. But I think what's a, a challenge in that thinking is that in my mind, as I study scripture, because we have a long horizon, because we know the goodness of the gospel, we know that God has conquered suffering, evil, and sin, right? We, we have a hopefulness that suffering is not antithetical to flourishing. In fact, God is big mm-hmm. enough and great enough and gracious enough to take suffering, right? And shame and all that and bring something good ultimately from it, right? So what I think is antithetical to flourishing is hopelessness, not suffering. Mm. So it's not about being hopeless, quite the contrary for people of the gospel, right? Of the resurrection of Christ and, and the new heavens and earth that wait. I mean, we have so much hope in the midst of the heartache and brokenness of the world. So it's really what I would say is flourishing embraces an epistemology of humble confidence, right? None of us have philosophical certainty. It also embraces hopeful realism, even already and not yet. I mean, that we live in a broken world with hope, but it will not be fully what we long it to be or we will be until the new heavens and earth, right? I mean, until, or sanctification, whatever category you want to use. So I understand that. I think that fits the biblical uh, narrative. But the biblical narrative is one of ultimate flourishing. Jesus said, what? The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But I have come to give you life, what? Life abundantly. And that's a, that's a pretty robust idea of... Yeah. A full life, and I think that hits flourishing. And the other category of flourishing is deeply tied to this really important theology of fruitfulness. Mm. All the way from the beginning of creation to John 15, and we could talk more about that, but fruitfulness has often been this bill as a primary indicator of discipleship, and we've often made faithfulness the highest point. But faithfulness and fruitfulness go together, and Jesus says that, right? By, by this, you know, my father's glorified you bear much fruit. So we can talk about fruitfulness as a really primary theological theme that I think dovetails very closely with flourishing in multiple levels that God has called us to be fruitful. Well, and fruitfulness also uh, dovetails very closely with abiding, which is That's really at the heart of what you're talking about as well. You can't be fruitful if you're not abiding. And yes. if you're not fruitful, you do at least have to investigate Am I truly abiding with Christ? Am I, am I tapping deep into that wellspring of his life? Uh, or am I trying to do this all on my own? Yeah, Bill, that's the primacy of intimacy. Yeah. I just want to highlight that 
Because even all the way back to the Old Testament, let me just highlight one thing that I think is so important. In the Abrahamic covenant, we have Genesis 12, right? Genesis 15, and the crescendo of Genesis 17. What's often missed there, I think, is in Genesis 17, 1, God says to Abram, and this is very important, I am the Lord God Almighty. He reveals himself to sinful Abram. And then what does he say? To Hebrew heritage. Walk before me. In, in a literal sense, if I may use that word, it's panim. It's literally, we have, we use that word as face. Walk in my face may be a very crusty, mm. but very real translation of that. And then he says, behold, that's this total life, this imperative. Be integral, be whole. So it's looking back to the garden, forward to the cross. And that invitation to Abraham, the crescendo of the covenant, you'll notice the, the direction of God's revelation that Jesus, Rabbi Jesus, picks up on. God says, in his act of grace, right, to sinful Abraham, what you lost in the garden, you'll recover in the cross. Now, walk before me, walk in intimacy, an invitation to intimacy, and be whole. And then out of that, what happens? It's a picture of that covenant of fruitfulness on your name, right? So you have, in a simple way, you have this flow, you have intimacy, integrity, and influence. And that's the progression of the shepherd leader's life. That's how it flows. And it's anchored in the Abrahamic covenant with mm-hmm. a new identity and a covenant. It's brilliant and beautiful. So we've, we've got maybe a minute or so left, and I, I hope this isn't a curveball question, um, <laughs> but I'm just curious more than anything, I'm not asking you to say anything profound, but Jesus comes to the church uh, here in North America, particularly the States today, what do you think would be the one word or the one sort of message as he as he surveys his church and his the, particularly the leaders in his church? What do you think his heart is is saying to us as leaders? Oh, that's such a wonderful question. I guess that what pops in my mind, Bill, is a text that I think we often miss its importance. And it's Matthew eleven twenty to thirty. I mean, our culture, our leaders. I am. We're weary. I mean, life gets us weary, right? It's hard, struggle of sin, brokenness, the world. But I think we're at a very weary point. Um, and so Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, right? And the weariness in that context is the Judaic crushing of all these external laws. But there's also an existential weariness too. I think that's there here. Exhaustion, tiredness, right? It's coming all our weary and that I will give you rest. And you know, Rabbi Jesus is going right back to Genesis through the life God has for us mm, in right. him, right? Now and forever, right? And then, he, then how? Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think that great invitation is what Jesus would give those who are his followers, particularly those who are serving him in some leadership role. I need that every day. And I love the picture of come to me, you know, come to me in intimacy. I love you. I delight in you. I want you to experience that delight. And then take my yoke. Be my apprentice. Take my yoke and learn from me. But I am gentle and humble of heart, and you're going to find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy. It literally means it fits you perfectly. My burden is light. So I think that would be the message. I don't know if that's, that's what I think Jesus said in the first century. I think he'd say that. He's still I'd saying say. it today. He says it to me regularly, that, that text. Well, Tom Nelson, thank you. You, you, yeah. have, you have given us a life message, I think, in this book that, uh, again, I encourage all of our listeners to get the flourishing pastor recovering the lost art of shepherd leadership. 
I want to thank you for being with us today on the Table podcast. And uh, wherever you dial into the table, I invite you to subscribe so that you can come back later and hear uh, our next program. For The Table, I'm Bill Hendricks. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to The Table podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.